So we're continuing our series in Route 66, titled this whole series, A Journey Through God's Word. We're finding your way home. You see, the, the Bible has a, has a big story, and sometimes when we dig into individual parts, we lose sight of that big story. What we want to do in this series is take one book of the Bible each week, and we're, do, and we're, and we're getting a God's eye view of that book. We want to get the big story. We, we found in Genesis that, that uh, man begins out of creation in a garden with God, and then that goes south, that slides sideways, and, and yet the book ends, the Bible ends with, with humanity again with God in his presence in a beautiful garden setting for all of eternity. Well, how does that happen? How do we get from, from expelled from the garden and in the curse of a broken creation, how do we get returned back into God's presence again? That's the big story of God's word that we're going to be seeing unfold book by book. Now, the book of Exodus begins... Uh, in an interesting place, what I want to do this morning, what I want to do we, when we spend some time in the book of Exodus is I want to do three things this morning. I want to I give us an overview of the book as a whole, and there's so much in this book, much more than we can cover in a morning. I want to get that, that overview, that God's eye view of, of the book of Genesis. And then I, wanna, I want us to uh, find the center. There's a center in the story of, of, of the book of Exodus. Sorry, I said Genesis. There's a center in the book of Exodus that I want to spend a little time on developing. And that center is Passover. That's a, there's a game changer there. And then I want to I look at three applicational points, three specific things, in fact, that the New Testament tells us that affect us as Christians, as followers of Christ, that result from Passover. Passover is, is central not only for Israel. Passover is central to the church, as I mentioned in our BP Blast pre, previewing the, this coming Sunday's message, that, that our two ordinances, both the Lord's Table and baptism, have their roots in Passover. We're going to spend some time talking about Passover and what Passover to. And I, th- I think there's some practicality here. Easily, we get used to the status quo. And we, we figure out how to have the best of life that we can, how to get along with the way things are, rather than pressing towards the way things are supposed to be and the way things will be. It's fascinating. You look back at, Western, at, at, at the history of Western civilization, and you tie that into church history as the gospel spreads, and, you, and you have, then you move into the Reformation. Out of the Reformation, you see these, these changes that are occurring first in Europe, and then it's brought over to, to this country as well. And there are dramatic changes in society and culture, the elevation of women, the end of slavery. Um, these things are occurring because of the influence of the gospel, the influence of Christianity. They change here in ways that they don't change other places in the world because of that. People not resigned to how things are. But the slaves in Egypt, in, in Exodus chapter 5, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there just briefly. Exodus chapter 5 and verse 1, the slaves in Egypt, they're, they're resigned. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron, they went to the Pharaoh. They said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Interesting. They are resigned to subjection, but they are called to submission. They are called to live in a new destiny. I don't like that call to submission that I put on the slide earlier so well. I'd rather phrase it this way. They are called to live in a new destiny, to submit to God, but they are called to be his people. God says, let my people go. They are not your slaves. They do not belong to you. Why? Because I made them. They're mine. 
Eight times he says, let my people go. Six of those times he says, let my people go so that they may worship me. They're called to a new destiny. They're called to a new direction. They're called to a new end, an end that was not in sight while they were busy making, making um, bricks there in Egypt. But the people themselves are not used to this. First, Moses shows up and he confronts Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, well, who is the Lord? In verse 2 of chapter 5, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? That's a good question. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? I'm in charge around here in Egypt, and I say these slaves are mine. Well, he's picked a fight with the wrong person. God is going to show him who he is. But at the same time, after this, he says, I'm going to make it harder. I'm going to make it harder on you. I, 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 you want me to let the people go that they can have a, have a, have a worship retreat in the wilderness? No, no, they've they got too much time on their hands to think of this kind of stuff. I'm going to make it harder. They're going to have to gather the straw themselves and still make their bricks in order to carry on with the building. They've got too much spare time. And the people are concerned about this, obviously. This was not the way they anticipated the negotiations going. And in verse 21 of chapter 5, the people say to Moses, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You have you've stirred up Pharaoh's anger against us. Why did you have to go and shake things up? Why did, you have to, why did you have to disturb the equilibrium? Why did you have to rock the boat? We were making it okay. We were getting by. You know, yeah, we had to do the building thing, but, you know, we, it was working out. Oh, so the Egyptians are taking our, 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 our boy babies and killing them. But, you know, we're, we're finding a way around that. It's amazing what we can get ourselves resigned to by the influences around us. Giving up the hope that is ours in the true and living God. They had given up hope. They'd resigned themselves to subjection when they are called to worship. They are called to serve the true and the living God. And so, now you have this, this um, tension elevating. You have Moses before Pharaoh contesting. You also have Moses later on in the book before God. And Moses before God, you find him receiving from the Lord, Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. You also find him interceding before God. He, 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 he goes to Pharaoh, he confronts Pharaoh on behalf of the people. But then later on in the book, after he's received the commandments, he's told by God, get back down the mountain, the people are messing it up, and the people have built this golden calf, remember that? And you think, oh boy, it's done, it's over. But Moses goes back and he intercedes. Moses pleads for these people to God. He pleads on their behalf to God. He prays for them. He intercedes for them. He says, God, do not destroy them. Do not judge them. Remember your promise. What are people going to say? People are going to say, yeah, God just let them out there into the wilderness so that he could kill them all. He said, don't let, you, don't, don't let that be said against your name. Remember your promise that you would bring them out of Egypt and you would bring them into the land that you promised to Abraham. God, you have got to keep your word. And God is a God who decrees, and God is the God who relents. And I think then he smiled a little, because he said, that's right. I will keep my word. He draws Moses into it, you could say. I will keep my word. God is a God who does keep his word. And there's something else that he liked about Moses in that moment. 
That is when Moses looked the most like Christ. When Moses is interceding on behalf of the people, I mean, God offers him a deal. God says, get away from them. I am going to wipe them out, and I'm going to build a whole new people from you, Moses. Oh, cool. Sweet. We'll call them the Mosesites. We'll have a, forget Israel, forget Jacob. You know, I mean, talk about a dysfunctional family anyway. We're going to start fresh with me. I mean, well, look what God has to work with here. That's not how Moses takes it. Moses says, no, God, you can't do that. It's against your word. It's against your promise. It's against your very character. If you would destroy them, then you might as well destroy me too. Why? Because who have I got to hope in? What God could I believe in? Who can I trust? I couldn't count on you because you don't keep your word. Oh, but he must. But in that moment where Moses says, God, please spare them or take my life too, Moses looks an awful lot like the one who would intercede for us, the one who would bear our guilt for us, and the one who, Hebrews 7 says, he continues to live, he always lives in order to intercede for us. So he's able to save us all the way through. The old King James says he's able to save to the uttermost those who come by faith in him because he ever lives to make intercession for them. He's always there to keep interceding. It doesn't matter where you've blown it. It doesn't matter what golden calf you've built. God just gives them the commands and yet while he's back, Moses back on the mountain, he said, we don't know what happened to that Moses guy. You know, build us a God. They blew it. So do we. So do we. You know it. I know it. And yet we have a gracious God and a Savior who continues to plead for us, Father, I died for that too. I paid for that sin of theirs. Receive them. And he does. Moses confronts Pharaoh. Moses interpleads. Moses pleads with God. This confronting to Pharaoh, in fact, in, in Exodus 12, 12, Exodus 12, 12, Moses says that he's going to bring judgment. With the culmination of the plagues in the last one, which is the death of the firstborn, he tells us what he's been doing all along. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12, take a look at it. It's, a, it's an intriguing verse. Exodus 12 tells, says, On the same night I will pass through Egypt. I will strike down every first, firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Whoa. How many gods are there? How many gods are there? Are we monotheist, one god? Or are we polytheist? There are many gods. There is one god. There is the true and living God. And yet he says, I am going to bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he will say, yes, and concerning these idols, concerning false worship, there are many gods and many lords. What is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual realities. He's talking about what we also call as angels and demons. Angels being the angels, the angelic realm, spiritual beings who serve God, who God created. Demons are like the angels, except they followed Satan in rebelling against God. Satan himself is a, is a spiritual being, more powerful than mortals, more powerful than humans, would seem like gods to us. If you imagine, okay, the m movie like, what is that, the Titan 
the Greek pantheon kind of movie. I didn't, I can't remember the name, but Clash of the Titans, yeah, those kind of things where you have these, these demigod-type figures that have this, they're great spiritual beings with great powers. Any spiritual beings, and there are spiritual beings, there is a spiritual dimension that the West, in our scientific materialism, easily forgets that the rest of the world does realize, come to Africa with me. Come to Cambodia if you want to see it. There is spiritual reality there. But just because there's spiritual reality, when you bump into it on a street corner somewhere, don't say, well, it was spiritual and it was real, so it must be true. No, it's a lie. Like from the beginning, but it's spiritual reality. There are so-called gods. There are demonic forces. There are spiritual beings behind the idols and the false worship of the world. But there is one God. This God made them. And so he says, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And God says, well, let me show you. And he begins to work in creation what he made to prove these other so-called gods have no power like the creator God, the one who made them and the one who made everything. He begins to show them. And he echoes things in creation. He turns creation toward chaos while he does it. The light becomes darkness. The, the, um, the insects who are subservient and lower than humanity become a plague upon humanity and bring chaos to humanity. Humanity was supposed to be in charge of those. Get those bugs out of here. Not now. Insects, frogs... Creation is turned upside down. Creation becomes chaotic. And then at the same time, in the midst of these floods, okay, the last God that's attacked is the, is the deity of Pharaoh himself. The firstborn of Pharaoh, who would also become Pharaoh, was, was understood to be a God themselves. And God says, on this night, I'm going to take the life of every firstborn in Egypt. Not just in Pharaoh's house. You say, well, Pharaoh's the bad guy. The poor Egyptians, they're caught up in this thing. Who was throwing the babies into the Nile? It wasn't just Pharaoh. It wasn't just Pharaoh's officers. It wasn't just the security forces. He told all of his people, any of you find an, Egypt, an, an Israelite baby boy out there, you chuck him in the river. And the whole people is, is, is co-opted into this evil. The society has become evil, and God's judgment is on all of it. All of humanity has been corrupted and is evil. And God's judgment is against us from the firstborn, think, Adam. God's judgment is against the firstborn who rebelled against him, wanted to be like God himself. That was the lie. And God judges it here. God judges it here. And there's the death of the firstborn. And yet, in that creation turning to chaos, and then from chaos to the new creation, let me give you one example of that. After the Passover, after the Passover, where the blood shelters the firstborn, and those who are covered by the blood of this Passover lamb, they don't die. After that, then they leave Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea, right? They come to the Red Sea, but there's water there. And it's too deep. They can't get across. And the mountains are hemming them up in this side and that. And they can't get away. And Pharaoh's army, Pharaoh changes mind. Pharaoh's army is coming behind them. All of his chariots. And he's going to wipe them out. What are they going to do? 
God divides the waters and dry land appears. What does that remind you of? There's Genesis chapter 1 all over again. Not only can God, the God who made creation, not only can he turn that creation chaotic, but that same God who owns creation because he alone made it, that same God is able to turn the chaos back into a recreation. I think I put in your notes that came out as recreation. That's no, 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 no. It's recreation. I should have put a hyphen in there. My apologies. Please correct that. God doesn't, God doesn't turn chaos into recreation. That's what you do. God, God takes chaos into a recreation, a new creation. Just like going across the Red Sea, the waters part in dry land. That's the creation moment where, where God separates the waters above from below and dry land appears. There you have it, recreation. Just tucked away in there that we know who's in charge, you see? The center of all of this, the center of it is Passover. The center of it is Passover, which God says, this is the night, this is the deal, this is going to be a new life for you. Turn, if you haven't yet, open your Bible to Exodus chapter 12. I want to read the Passover story, make a couple of comments there, and then I want to make three applications out of that that I've put in your notes from the New Testament. What does God have to say to us particularly as a church, as followers of Jesus, concerning Passover? What does Exodus have for us? Exodus chapter 12, from verse 1. If you're using a pew Bible, then I'm on page 48. Wow, we are in the beginning of the book. Page 48. All right. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This is in the spring. It's not January, though, but this is the start because this is where life starts. Life starts at Passover. Life doesn't start the fiscal year in October. Life doesn't start the beginning of the year, January 1st. No matter what resolutions you made, life starts at Passover for us as well. The first month of your year, tell the whole community of Israel, on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. One for each household. It's personal. But if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. There's enough for everybody. There's a lamb for everybody. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of the lamb needed in accordance with what each person is going to eat. You're going to eat this lamb. The animals you choose must be a year old males without defect. They are perfect. They are in the prime of their life, and yet they're going to be cut off. They're going to be blameless lambs. They're not going to have any fault or blemish, even as Christ is the spotless and perfect and faultless lamb of God. A lamb without blemish, Peter says, and without fault. No defect. And you're going to take them from the sheep or from the goats, take them until the 14th day. You're going to get to know this lamb. In fact, the practice of Israelites was to take, was to take the Passover lamb and to, and to keep it close to the family. They would watch it for those, for those three days to make sure from the 10th to the 14th day, they would watch it to make sure that there wasn't anything wrong with it. It didn't limp. It didn't have any hidden blemish that they hadn't noticed at first. They would watch it and evaluate it to make sure. Even as Christ, for three years, they watched him and evaluated him in public ministry, and they found no fault with him. The 10th day to the 14th day of the month. And when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter. Now the NIV says they must slaughter them at twilight. 
Many of your Bibles say they must kill it at twilight. It's because the Hebrew here is singular. We have gone from everybody has a lamb to all of these lambs are one lamb. You must kill it, the Passover, at twilight. You remember when Jesus dies on the cross? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You remember when Jesus dies? And what happens? It gets dark. That was the hour of the day, that those twilight hours from 3 to 6, before the day ends, but enough time at 3 p.m., enough time to give them time to carry out the sacrifices in the temple. At about the same time when the Passover lambs are being killed in the temple, Jesus Christ is dying on a cross at Calvary. And then it goes dark. Well, from noon, there's, a, there, there, there's extra twilight in there. It goes dark while his sin is put on him. And it goes dark. It's twilight. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is our Passover. We're going to read that in just a moment. They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So those houses that you're going to stay in, that place which is going to be your refuge tonight, he says, you're going to take that blood from that lamb that you have sacrificed, that you have killed, and you're going to apply that to the doorpost. You're going to make that, this is going to be your weather stripping tonight. This weather stripping of the blood of a lamb which was sacrificed in your place, in the place of the firstborn, this is what's going to keep death from coming into this home. This is what's going to keep judgment from coming tonight. So everybody who believed that, that's a little weird. What? Really? We kill a lamb. We've just gotten to, gotten to know the little rascal too. And we have to kill this. We have to sacrifice this, this innocent animal. This, he did nothing. He's not an Egyptian lamb. It's our lamb. And we have to kill this innocent animal. What does God have against lambs? What does God have against his son? Something about sacrifice, as cruel as it seems... In a day when we recognize um, that, 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 cruelty, that cruelty to animals should not happen. In a day when people talk about animal rights. or what, Why would God have so many sacrifices? This, this shows us the cost of sin, doesn't it? This shows us the horror of sin. This is what it took. An innocent, the first sacrifice is in the Garden of Eden when an innocent animal is killed to provide a covering because now they know they are naked. Now they know they are exposed, they are vulnerable. And every animal ever since, every sweet little yearling lamb that bounced around and played with the kids before they killed it reminds them that's what sin costs. That's what sin does. Sin brings death. Okay? That's sin. And yet, it cost God his own son that lamb points to a sacrifice that would come. Every sacrifice points to one, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So take the blood of that lamb, put it on the side of the doorpost. That is your, your judgment weather stripping to keep condemnation, to keep death out. That same night they are going to eat the meat roasted by fire along with bitter herbs. The bitter herbs represent either the bitterness of bondage or the bitterness of sin. People, people understand it both ways. Bread made without yeast. We're going to talk about that unleavened bread in just a moment. 
Don't eat the meat raw or cooked boiled in water, but roasted over fire, fully cooked. This meat was well done. This meat was fully roasted by a, a fiery judgment. In fact, there could be nothing left. This, this lamb needed to be wholly consumed. Whatever was not eaten at the table needed to be consumed in the fire, even as Christ gave himself fully, completely for us. Completely roasted. You are to eat of it. In verse 11, eat of it with your cloak tucked into your belt. Eat it with your sandals on your feet and your staff in hand. This is one of those standing at the counter meals. You know how you you get up late. You don't have a lot of time. You don't have time to sit down and, and sort of wake up slowly and eat your breakfast there at the table and sip your coffee. No, you're, you got breakfast on the go this morning. You got up late. You got an early appointment, and you have got to grab something quick and eat it on the, on the stand and, and quickly get out the door. That's what's going on here. He says, when you eat this meal, be ready to travel. When you eat this meal, be ready to go because you don't have much time left here in Egypt because we are going out. We're on our way. Standing and eating this meal when typically uh, the, the, the Eastern way of eating was to lay down to recline at the table. Standing was a lot different. Standing this, eating it, this was food on the go. This was fast food, okay? Because they're going out. He said, if you believe it, this is the way that you're going to eat it. Eat it standing up, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's power. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am who I am. I am the only uncaused cause in the universe. I am the only creator who created everything. I am the only one who before me there was no God form, neither shall be after me. I alone am he beside me. There is no other, God says, no matter what the Egyptians think. I am the Lord. And so you're going to commemorate this day. That's Passover. And I would submit to you that the center of the Exodus and the basis of the Exodus, the reason these people were in bondage and now free, the reason these people who were building out of mud and straw are now going to be worshiping God in a, in a tabernacle tent of, of gold and silver and precious woods, the reason that happens, the change that is made from bondage into new life is Passover. It's the blood of the Lamb pointing to something that's even bigger than that, pointing to something that had what difference does Passover make? It takes them out of Egypt. It takes them to the Red Sea. It brings them through on dry ground. It brings them into new life. What difference does Passover make for us? There are three things they learn out of Passover. The first one is lose the leaven. They were to eat bread. They were to prepare bread, but it was going to be unleavened bread, right? It was going to be bread without yeast. Why? Because... They don't have time to wait for the bread to rise. They are going to head on out of there with their kneading bowls, the bread dough still in the bowl, waiting to be kneaded. They don't have time to let it rise. It's going to be carried out on their hip. They are on their way. God is delivering them that very night. Quickly removed from Egypt, removed out of bondage into new life, and not allowing the old to linger. And so Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you can flip over to 1 Corinthians now. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in, in verse 7. 
1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, we are told, in the midst of, 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 of immorality in the church, in the midst of sin in the church that they are putting up, and they're saying, yeah, you know, that's not so bad. You know, we're a gracious people. You know, who are we to judge others? You know, judge not lest you be judged and all that stuff, right? Well, Paul says, no, no, no. Don't allow sin within the church. Don't tolerate sin among yourselves. That's leaven. And that leaven will spread through the whole church. It will affect all of you. All of you will be led along the way into sin if you tolerate sin among yourselves. And so he says in verse 7, Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, without leaven, as you really are. Here's the Passover connection. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Let us keep the festival. Not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and with wickedness. He he expands it now beyond just that particular sexual sin that was going on there in 1 Corinthians 5. He expands it out and he talks about sin in general. Watch out for it. Don't allow it to remain in your life because it will spread. It will give the enemy a foothold. Lose the leaven. Let us keep the feast, the festival, without the old leaven the leaven of malice and of wickedness, but bread without yeast, without leaven, the bread of sincerity and truth. You see what he says? That out of Passover we live in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long feast that you started out and you search out all the leaven in your house and you get rid of it. You say, what has God got against yeast? It's a picture, it's an image just to help us understand something. It's not about the yeast, it's about sin. And if we have been given new life in Christ, then don't live in the old. Live new. Step into the new. And search out those things that don't belong any longer, that don't agree with the new, and leave them behind. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, however, always follows Passover. It never precedes it. Sometimes we have in our mind, I want to approach God. I want to come to faith in Christ and I need to get my life a little bit in order. Then I'll believe in Christ, my Passover, and I'll be saved. I'll be on that road to heaven too. That's trying to put the Feast of Unleavened Bread before Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread never precedes Passover. You don't clean out the life before we're saved by God's Lamb. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread always follows Passover. We have been called to live new. Lose the leaven. That's the first thing. After Passover, God gives them instructions about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After that, calling them out, he says, remember the firstborn that I killed? You need to remember whose you are. All of you firstborn that have now been saved, you have been redeemed. I have bought you to myself with this Passover lamb. He says, you are mine. 1 Corinthians 6 picks up on that. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18 to 20. 1 Corinthians 6 picks up on that and he says, he says, don't you know whose you are? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. You and I do not belong to ourselves. Like Israel needed to remember, we are the firstborn. We are God's. We need to remember whose we are. We belong to God. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Now, you may be thinking at this point, well, this is getting kind of heavy. This is talking about all the sin in our lives. Don't forget the golden calf deal, okay? 
See, Israel's, Israel winds up out there in the desert. God brings them to Mount Sinai, and they want to say, now that we are God's people, now that we're out of Egypt, now we're in a new life, we have been brought through death into new life, we want to know how to live. He said, well, this is how you live. You came here this morning partly because you want to know how to live. You said, well, how can I walk and live in ways that will please God, will honor him, will bring him glory? And yet, even when we know, we don't. We don't. We fall. We fail. We build our own golden calves. We fashion God into our own image. We determine what we want to do. We want to have it our way instead of his way. And what happens out of that? The Son intercedes. Like Moses interceded for them, the Son of God intercedes for us. Well, you and I are not perfect, and that's not what I'm calling us to when I say lose the leaven. When I say remember whose you are, that you're not your own, glorify God. And when you fail, remember your intercessor. Remember the one who goes for you to God and says, that was sin, I died for that too. Remember whose you are. And finally, the third one, step into that new life then. I love the picture in Exodus 14, verses 20 to 31, where there they are at the Red Sea, and they go through. This is baptism, by the way. 1 Corinthians 10 says that, that all of the people who came out of Egypt, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the water. You know the problem Baptists have, the problem Baptists have with that verse? That was a baptism where nobody got wet. They went across on dry land. But they're identified with Moses. They believed what God told Moses. And they go out with Moses. And you and I have been joined with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Romans 6 says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, even so we may live in new life. That's what we talked about with a baptism just last Sunday. That's what baptism portrays. Not only dying with Christ in his death for our sin, but being raised with Christ as he was raised to live in a new life. They go across the Red Sea. The waters part. They go across. They have a new life on the other side. Pharaoh and his army tries to follow. Well, Pharaoh's army tries to follow. Pharaoh stays behind. Pretty smart guy. The army goes in. The chariots are there. The waters come crashing down in. Kill them all. They have been separated by those waters of death from their old taskmaster. Now Romans 6 tells us they can say no. Now imagine it, you're one of those Israelites, you're on the far side, you're in new land, you have been set free, you are out of Egypt. And yet, following behind the army, one of the taskmasters comes along, and he sees his slaves there on the other side, he doesn't know what they're doing over there, they should be over here, what are they doing over there, how did they get there, I don't know. But he yells across in his loudest slave master voice, gather straw, make bricks. What do you do? Come on, you've been hearing that for how many years? You've been hearing those orders and they've been cracking that whip for years and years and years. And when you hear the voice, you recognize it and you turn around and look and you say, well, where's the straw? And then you remember, I don't have to gather straw anymore. I don't have to make bricks anymore. I have been separated from him to hear by death 
in between. That's Romans 6. We still live in the habits of the old. They still echo around in us, but we don't have to. When you hear the temptation, you don't have to give in to it. You can say, oh, I recognize that voice. I used to listen to it. But now, because of Jesus Christ and his death for me, I can say no to sin and step into new life on the other side, which is worshiping God in his presence, tabernacle. But there I need to close. I want to close with this. If you have gone across in new life, if you have been saved by faith in God's Passover lamb, what difference does Passover make? Passover makes all the difference. Passover makes all the difference. It separates you from bondage to sin, and it opens up to you a new life in God's presence. From this present chaos, finding your way home. It's a way that God has provided. It's a way that God has called us into. And that way is faith in Jesus Christ, his Passover lamb. If you've believed in him, you can lose the leaven. You can live a new life. If you have believed in him, then you know whose you are. It's not what you do, it's whose you are. And if it's whose I am, then I want to live in that new life that he has given me. Let's pray. Father, in Exodus, we thank you that you have called us out. Exodus paints a picture of salvation that is in Jesus, of a rescue, of a dramatic change in life that comes because of what you did. Lord, some of those people you dragged even kicking and screaming out of Egypt. They didn't want to go because they'd gotten comfortable where they were. Lord, we might be comfortable might be comfortable thinking we're getting by. I'm doing okay. I'm a pretty good person. Oh, but Lord, I want to worship you. I want to live more in that new life on the far side of the Red Sea. Lord, I'm reminded this morning of my golden calf, of any idol I would put ahead of you, anything else I would put up and said, I've, I want to serve this. Oh, Lord. Jesus intercedes for me. Jesus died for me. Lord, would you remove that thing's grip on me and show me you. I I pray it in Jesus' name.